Holy Gospel according to St. John, the first chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh the man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel, Therefore am I coming baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost." And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Again the next day after John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, Where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is interpreted a stone. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I should have said when I made the introduction, the announcements, uh, this is the first Sunday of the marathon, right? It's Marathon Sunday, always interprets or interrupts uh, people's plans for church. Anyway, uh, I don't watch as much football as I used to. I guess I should, it's playoff season and all. But I am aware of the value, so the color commentators tell me, of a disruptive defensive player. They're constantly in the middle of everything, always wreaking havoc. They don't always have the the gaudiest of uh, statistics, but uh, the people who are in the know know that these disruptive defensive players, they always require a lot of attention. The offensive coordinator has to make a game plan around that particular player. Maybe all the plays will go to the other side of the field, for example, or they'll have to figure out ways to get double or even triple teamed. Uh, Or maybe the strategy that they went into the game with will change at halftime. J.J. Watt, a Houston favorite, was an example of such a disruptive player. In his prime, he always had to be accounted for. Uh, He required so much attention that other defensive players uh, could do quite well. They could rack up the gaudy stats because uh, they were just single-teamed, for example. 
Uh, at his retirement last month, many an offensive coordinator, no doubt, breathed a sigh of relief because his disruptiveness was no longer their problem. Uh, none of us like our lives to be disrupted. We get used to our days and our weeks and even our years being more or less the same. We fall into patterns and habits, uh, most of them good, hopefully, but some of them probably not so good. We come to depend on the reliability of our paycheck, of our schools, of our employers, our employees, our utilities working, our cars starting, our bodies being healthy. And to have any or all of that disrupted, uh, especially if we are doing things that we enjoy, is no fun at all. Someone telling us, for example, to uh, stop doing something that is sinful or wrong. Uh, someone uh, indicating we should be pursuing virtue. Or even that we should sacrifice for a good cause. Well, none of those would be particularly welcome words. They would disrupt our usual way of doing things. But that is exactly what happened when Jesus came around. Jesus was the ultimate disruptor. When he calls the disciples, they had full lives. It's not like they were looking for something to do. Uh, some of them were married, uh, perhaps with children, although most were young men. They had uh, jobs that they uh, had been in their families for generations. You know, their families were, their fathers were fishermen, so they were fishermen, that sort of thing. They had routines. They had uh, synagogues and a rabbi. They had income and expenses. Any of that sound familiar? Right? But Jesus cannot be denied. After all, they recognized right away, especially in John's account, his significance uh, John the Baptist in this passage gives Jesus two incredible titles right off the bat, Lamb of God and Son of God. Uh, right off the bat then, these words are spoken about Jesus, that the Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the one who would be the bearer of sin, who could forgive sin, of course, uh, an activity only God could fulfill. And then Son of God, uh, this would be the title that would help those early Christians in the post-resurrection era. They're trying to figure out just who this Jesus was after all. What was his ultimate significance? And they go back to these titles, oh, the Son of God. Uh, and that is what leads the church to uh, ultimately declare that, that the Son has this essential unity with the Father and yet they are these distinct persons in what we would later call the Trinity. But whether they understood the, the full metaphysics of, of all of this, the disciples certainly understood that Jesus was a man with unique authority, and he possessed the imprimatur of God himself. And so right away they confess another title 
for Jesus. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God who will save Israel. And that is really the title uh, they associate with Jesus for most of his ministry, by and large. Uh, Once he is raised from the dead, they sort of reflect and go into overdrive in realizing just who Jesus is, that he is the one who would justify and glorify them upon their own deaths. And as the resurrected Son of God, Jesus went on disrupting lives. It wasn't, it wasn't over, it was actually just beginning. His disciples in his name would travel the world, disrupting the lives of all who would dare to join them on their walk with Jesus. Yes, I would argue no force has proven to be as disruptive, in a good way, of course, as Christianity. For to be an obedient follower of Jesus, the new convert would find that their marriages would change, that their work would change, or at least their relationship to their work or their motivation for their work. Uh, How they spent their money and their free time would change. How they raised and treated their children would change. How they would resist and challenge uh, power, especially fraudulent political power, would change. Their sacrifices to false gods, of course, would end. We see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians when Paul is helping them understand how to deal with meat sacrificed to idols. This was imbued into every aspect of pagan culture. So yes, Jesus disrupted lives. He has disrupted lives here for 2,000 years. And if you're here this morning, it's because you either had no choice in the matter or because your life has been disrupted by Jesus. You have been confronted, not only by your sin, but by the bearer and forgiver of your sins. And you see in Jesus a wonderful life that you cannot quit, that you cannot give up, because you know that death and judgment are on the other side of that decision. But Jesus and his church have also been hated precisely because they stand for the disruption of lives. Jesus, of course, predicts as much. He predicts that we will be hated as even he was hated. The church, in both standing for what is right and being willing to die even for what is right, is the greatest threat to the world's offensive coordinators that we can imagine. No, I'm not talking about football again. No, I'm talking about those who delight in their sin, those who delight in violence, in theft, in murder, in abuse, in arrogance and hubris. In summary, those who offend God, those who cause offense, and those who coordinate their offensive deeds. Those offensive coordinators, if you'll allow the football analogy, they are rightly terrified of Jesus because he and all who have the courage to stand with Jesus 
stand against their evil. We disrupt their way of living. So don't be too terribly surprised if and when you are hated for disrupting corruption and evil. For Jesus is the ultimate disruptor. He suffers no liars, though thankfully for us he does suffer fools. Just as he disrupts the lives of these disciples called into ministry, he will disrupt the lives of those who follow him today. Well, if that is true, then what does that say about our evangelism? What does it say about our apologetics, our messaging and marketing, words I generally disdain in the life of the church, but if you'll allow it, What kind of reception should we expect when we go out and proclaim the gospel? What kinds of difficulties should new believers anticipate? Uh, This is something I'll talk about in our upcoming Sunday school class on apologetics. But the church has this bad habit these days of basically presenting the gospel as nothing but a solution to all problems, right? It might even make you rich, Uh, And it might magically make you healthy, might make all your problems disappear. Uh, So don't underestimate how hard it might be to proclaim the truth of God, right? That actually Jesus might disrupt your life and might not make everything instantly better. Therefore, uh, if we understand this, that it kind of tells us, it instructs us where we ought to draw lines and how we actually present the gospel and how realistic we need to be. Even those of us who are long-time Christians, you might say, we have difficulties. Jesus still disrupts our lives. We continue to struggle against sin and the devil, even though we know that Jesus has conquered all. We continue to strive to be faithful to Jesus in every area of life. And though we will always find it difficult, we know that with virtuous habits, it actually can become easier. Well, here's the good news. Jesus does indeed disrupt the path of life that we would probably prefer, but he promises to save us. It is not without reward that we allow Jesus to disrupt our lives. He says in Matthew 19, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And if everyone actually listened to Jesus, wow, what a better world it would be. Uh, Can you imagine how different our television or computer screens would look? We wouldn't uh, have to worry when we walk out of our house or we could leave a bike somewhere without it being chained up and we'd know when we got out of the grocery store, it'd still be there. When Jesus calls the disciples, he absolutely disrupts their lives. They lay down their nets, they follow him, and when Jesus calls us to follow him, it will disrupt our lives as well. And to a world that is way too comfortable with the status quo. He will be seen as an unwelcome disruptor in their lives. 
but we must share the gospel anyway. For while disruptive now, Jesus is the ultimate bringer of peace. That is the challenging but necessary message that we must take to heart and our neighbors must hear. Amen.